Hello, everyone. Welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore the winding and sometimes treacherous paths that lead us around the Delmarva Peninsula. Delmarva, which covers all of Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, is a beautiful place to live. But unfortunately, today we will be discussing some topics that are very troubling and dark and have left families without their loved ones. So just as I give my normal disclaimers with my episodes that the topics covered may be disturbing or triggering to some people, this episode will include discussion of death, violence, and the death of children, of teenagers. So just up front, this will be a difficult episode, and it, it's also violence involving other teenagers, teenagers against teenagers, so children against children. I've known that I wanted to cover this case for a very long time. When I also started the research on this case, I happened to find information about another instance around the same part of Delaware where another teenager was killed by teenagers. And there was a recent update to her case. So I wanted to go into it to her case, the second one, just to give the update. But I want to go in depth with the case of Amy Joyner Francis. There is a lot of emotion with that case. Personally, there are conflicting feelings when we get down to the very end and know everything that happened. But at the same time, I have this just feeling of injustice, of even fear of what the future holds with instances like these happening more and more frequently. So just one more disclaimer or warning this will be a difficult episode, so if you feel like you know, the topic of children committing violence against each other will be difficult to hear, then I definitely understand, and I'll talk to you again soon. If at any time you did just want to review some of the information, I will leave the links to all of my sources in the description of the episode. This will also be my longest episode as I do want to cover it all in one episode, not in two like I sometimes do. I know that some listeners like longer form videos while others like shorter ones. So with this one, I, I am making the decision to put it all in one episode so that nothing is missed, um, that you won't have to you know, wonder if you missed anything in the first video or first um, episode that everything will just all be here together. Right now, with things that have happened recently in schools, with just the state of our nation and even of the world in general, that things that I had originally intended to say could ring hollow. Some of the words or expressions that I use will not be strong enough for some of us, the words may not mean anything as we've been touched by these events that have happened and continue to happen in our schools 
and no word itself can mean anything because of the numbness or the pain that someone might be feeling. After being witnessed to or affected by acts of violence against our children, when I was a child, there was no thought, no comprehension even that we could go to school and not make it home safely. That was not part of the public conscience. But now it seems to be happening more and more that we don't know that the days of knowing that our children are safe within their schools just seem to be coming less and less. My kids are in middle school or junior high, depending on where you live. Some that may be listening from other countries, to give you an idea, they're in the age group between 11 and 14. And schools have changed a lot since I was in school. For one thing, I went to an extremely small school with only 10 people in the graduating class. And it's also been about 28 years since I've been in my children's age group, or a little bit more, quite frankly. And things have changed so much between the advent of social media. And really, that's probably the biggest impact. But within that growth comes all of the positives and all of the negatives that come with it. Access to information that's unsettling or disturbing. Parents wanting to guard and protect what their children watch while not keeping too much of a rein on them so that they don't rebel. But looking back at the first day of school for the 2021-22 school year, when I went to pick up my kids, I saw this man walking around the front of the schoolyard and he was very agitated. There were two staff members walking close to him. They were also, quite frankly, agitated and trying to get his attention. When my boys got in the car, my youngest pointed at the man and said, see him? And then he pointed again and then said, said, see the kid over there in the teddy bear shirt? That man got into a fight with him. That is not the way to start off the school year. Since then, there have been multiple fights. And though not actually verified, I heard that there was a stabbing in one of the other schools within the district. And usually once a week, if not more, my son will tell me about fights happening, including ones that he's been caught up in, such as when he was on the stairs and a fight broke out endangering not only him, but any child who was on those stairs. When I asked him what he did, he said that he and the other kids got to a corner. So given the layout of the school, I think they must have been able to get to a landing and get back into the corner to keep from being accidentally shoved down the stairs. Then one day I saw two people fighting in the yard but I couldn't tell if it was a real or a play fight. And this is just as I was about to approach the stoplight in front of the school. Now, this school has far outgrown its capacity and things are always very crowded. After watching the two people that I was not quite sure if they were fighting or not continue to walk away, I look up just as the light turns green. I'm the very first one at the light on that side of the road, but it is two lanes going each way. 
There is a person to the left of me, but I am the closest to this crosswalk and to the students. Just as the light does turn green, a boy falls in front of my car. Two people are fighting, including the one who just fell in front of my car. The crossing guard starts to blow his whistle, punches are being thrown, and kids start to record the fight. Those who are a few cars behind me or further back start to beep their horns for us to go as, you know, they're too far behind to really see what's going on. The car to my left does go since there's no child in front of their car. And even though the boy that was in front of mine is back up and on the sidewalk, I'm nervous. I don't go immediately. I want to make sure that they're done with their fighting and that one does not fall in front of my car or any of those cars that are too far behind me to know that they need to be a little more cautious than usual to know what just has occurred. So once it does seem that things have settled down, I start to inch my way forward. But I also notice that more and more, it's girls who are joining in on the fights. My kids keep telling me about the fights that happen. And one day after spring break, my son points to a girl and said that there was a fight, that she was involved in it, and she just got off being suspended before spring break. I think a lot of us in our minds hear, you know, that saying that sugar and spice and everything nice are what little girls are made of. And looking at these incidents, I go back to a day where I heard something on the news that just made me stop and think how it could happen so close to where I live. It goes back to the case of Amy Joyner Francis and how I used to naively think that my biggest worry with sending my kids to school would be if they kept up with their studies and with their grades, but not worrying that they might be injured or worse. As things have progressed, I've thought about homeschooling my children, but my younger son thrives in social settings, so he would miss his friends. My older son is on the autism spectrum and tends to isolate himself. So sending him to school helps with his social skills and he receives guidance that I would not be able to give him at home. So that night, after seeing the fights, I go home and post to a local Facebook page expressing how I'm worried about our children and I share some thoughts on how I think we can support them better, that we need to build self-esteem and also conflict resolution skills. And then the next day, someone kills 21 people at a school in Texas. And as that comes up on my phone with a notification of a news story happening, I start to wonder if my concern about a fight that happens at the school is as important. The concern about that fight seems so much less relevant in the wake of such a mass tragedy of all of these young children, of the teachers who tried to save them being killed at what should be one of the, if not the safest institution that there is anywhere to protect our children. But as these thoughts cross my mind, I also think worrying about the individual fights that happen at school it may be the best time to start looking at those 
by trying to teach some of the skills that we know to avoid these fights sooner rather than later, that we need to recognize signs that a child may be struggling, whether it be scholastically, mentally, emotionally, or socially. We need to be present and support every child within our community to try to prevent tragedies such as this, whether it be the school shootings that have occurred or these individual fights. And one of the things that I've stressed in the past is conflict resolution, that it seems that a first instinct might be to fight, but a better way to come to a solution is to talk things out, to hear each other out, to show respect. But that's not happening. But Amy, from everything that I've heard about her, was one who would want to step in and try to provide some guidance and try to resolve things before they did lead to violence. So I want to discuss her life, what took her life, and what happened to those who are involved. April 21st, 2016. The day started as most other school days would to so many people in the Wilmington, Delaware area. Kids were getting ready for school, and a 16-year-old named Amy Joyner Francis would have been preparing for her classes at Howard High School of Technology. This is one of four vocational technical schools that are in the Wilmington area. The schools allow students to receive a core education while also focusing on one of five areas of concentration that can help aid, this, aid the student with early classes in their decided line of work, as well as provide a more personalized education. I wonder if while Amy was getting ready, if she had thought about her friend, one that she had been talking to on social media the night before. Amy, someone who was described as kind and giving, had been trying to counsel a friend who was going through some personal issues with a boy. But another student at her school seemed to have taken things the wrong way. So let's learn a little bit about Amy. When I first saw her picture, I thought of the words old soul. There seemed to be a level of wisdom and quiet strength behind those eyes that you wouldn't expect to see in one so young. No, I've never met her, but there's this look that is both serene yet somehow troubled, kind but worried. Like she's thinking about others, like she's trying to take on the weight of the world in some ways by trying to lend help and advice to those who may need it. Amy's friends and classmates said that she was more of a quiet person and that she she would be a friend that would counsel you if needed, she was not one to fight, and she would have tried to talk things out with others. On April 20th, her friend was having an issue with a boy, but not too much other info was really provided about those specifics. Amy felt concerned for this friend and told her to, quote, just be careful. And as the evening progressed, other students joined into the social media thread. Then, one person joined who thought that the phrase, just be careful, and later how Amy had suggested that someone might betray another person by using the phrase, switch up, 
was somehow about her. Trinity Carr and her friends Zion Snow and Shakira Wright took those words personally. Trinity more so. Little could anyone have known that these few words, meant to bring comfort and guidance to a friend, could be taken by another and distorted, building from rage to a devious and calculated plot. As has been the site of so many altercations in so many different high schools, positioned far away from the gazeful eyes of teachers and staff, a confrontation would take place in the bathroom. Did Amy, Trinity, Zion, or Shakira just happen to meet in the bathroom? Or did someone intend to corner Amy there? From that bathroom, Zion posted a picture to Snapchat. In the picture, Amy looks as though she's speaking with Trinity Carr and that she's trying to settle the situation, to use the words of those involved in the case, diffuse the situation. However, the quote attached to that Snapchat said, Bout to fight her. Then there were a number of emojis following where the emoji was laughing with tears coming out of its eyes. The numbers were against Amy. In that bathroom, even though Amy didn't want to fight, she just wanted to talk, Trinity Carr attacked her. Zion Snow was there, as was Shakira Wright. While Trinity may have been the aggressor, the other two knew about the fight. And even in 2016, when this happened, the cell phones came out and people started to record. And at the same time that I find it abhorrent that someone would film another person's attack, most likely, likely for social media shares rather than trying to preserve evidence, Recording did ultimately help in putting together the events that led to Amy's death. In the video, which I will not post here, as I have seen short clips of it when this first happened, those frames, those pictures stick with me. Carr was the aggressor, both kicking and hitting at Amy Joyner Francis. Amy held her purse, and I have to wonder if she was trying to use it as a shield to protect her head or her torso, holding up a piece of fabric with just normal everyday contents inside as a shield against the advances of a peer bent on injuring her. And Carr landed some punches, and after that, took Amy by her hair and began to drag her pulling her into the larger handicap stall, which would provide further protection against interference, Carr used the sink inside of that stall as a weapon, banging Amy's head into it again and again and again. In this process, Amy's fingernails were torn out. And though, according to the autopsy, this was not a result of any actual intent on Trinity Carr's part to pull them out, it was a result of violence that was perpetrated against Amy while she was trying to fight them off. It goes to the state of mind of the attacker and to all of the indignities, pain, and violence that Amy was subjected to. Other students watched 
and as Amy fell over, Zion Snow began to kick her. Amy was seen trying to hold on to Carr's shirt as she started to fade, eventually falling over, her breathing labored. At this point, Shakira Wright, as well as some other students, did step in and try to separate them. It was observed that Amy's breathing was not good and she was having difficulty and lost consciousness. A state police helicopter flew Amy to A.I. DuPont Hospital, which was pretty close. This is a world-renowned children's hospital, but they were not able to save her. Now let's stop and think about what's going on all at the same time with everybody surrounding the situation. Were Amy's parents notified by the time she was on the helicopter, or did they know later? Would they have been able to get to the hospital and meet her, hoping that she would hear their voice and provide comfort to her? Or was it too late for that? Had, at any point after Amy lost consciousness, known what was going on? And that is a question that haunts me. I was once in a situation at work where a young woman suffered a medical event. She didn't make it, but we do have a response team on site, and they worked so hard. And the whole time, I was just hoping that she knew she wasn't alone. I hoped that she could hear that people were fighting for her and trying everything they could to help her. Did Amy know that? Did she know that people were fighting for her, were there for her, trying to bring her back? Or was the last thing that she knew that a fellow student was attacking her? The staff and faculty, what were they doing and thinking? They had to maintain their composure because they had other children to think of. Instead of the halls of academia, that building was now a crime scene. There were children in that school. And no, they weren't tiny children too young to understand what death was. But they are still children. And they may have had the recognition that one of their friends had been taken out of the school in a helicopter to try to save her life. And did they know she wouldn't be coming back? I do know that the staff did close the school that day and Governor Jack Markell reached out to show assistance if they needed to so that the students could be counseled and to try to meet the needs that all of her friends and fellow students would need over the upcoming days. The students would be having a flurry of emotions from sadness and anger and fear, not only over the next few days, but for a much longer time frame. Gary Fullman, who was the chief of staff to Wilmington's mayor, said, quote, There was an altercation that initially started between two people. And my understanding is that additional individuals joined in against the one person. Mayor Dennis Williams later added, My heart bleeds for the family. Word of this altercation and subsequent death quickly spread and hit our small state like a shockwave. And I remember being stunned by this. I think at that time, I was still under this naive impression that girls don't fight. You know, that from this point on, that innocence of mine even was gone. It made me think 
that children really are at risk once they enter those doors and are away from their family and loved ones. Amy's father said, quote, I think this is a dream and I'm trying to wake up. All I know is my daughter is gone. She was the love of my life and it hurts. He also said, I thought that schools were a safe place that you could drop your kids off and they would come home after school. But apparently that's not the case with some of the schools now. The children are out of control, end quote. Shock would continue to grow as information started to hit social media. Children had stood around and filmed the event. One person described this act as, quote, sickening. Of course, then concern about school safety would quickly emerge and come to the forefront. However, Police Chief Cummings said that he did not see continuing violence as an issue at Howard. He said that he'd not been made aware or known of any other issues at the school recently. A witness to the attack was another young woman named Kaya Wilson. She was in a stall in the bathroom when the fight started. Ms. Wilson said she was fighting a girl, and then that's when all these other girls started bank banking her, like jumping her, and she hit her head on the sink. Initially, Police Chief Bobby Cummings reported that there were two students that were being questioned. A spokesperson soon emerged for the family, Sherry Dorsey Walker, who was a Wilmington Councilwoman. She had known the family and stepped into the role to be their voice while they were trying to grieve. And try to think of the family grieving at this point. They are having to come to terms with the fact that a young girl who brought so much light and vibrancy into their life and into their home was no longer going to be there. But they also had to grieve on a public stage. Everybody grieves differently, and while some may want to be the face for the family and emerge by taking hold of all of the preparations, many do reach for privacy during this process. In cases such as these, Families may have to come forward while they would rather be at home, sharing time with their loved ones, lending support for those who loved Amy the most, but they were faced with questions from the media, questions from the police, dealing with the school, and all this while trying to somehow comprehend how going to school could end in such a tragedy. And thankfully, they did have someone who was willing and able to take on that role, who may have been a little more familiar with the processes and could try to help navigate the tiring and worrisome routes that any type of judiciary journey can take you to, even more so when it deals with loss of life. The words spoken by Amy's family showed a dignified grace about them. Knowing that a senseless loss of life can lead to quick anger and even retaliation, the family said through Sherry Dorsey Walker that they were looking for the community to heal spiritually and that they were also, quote, asking people to just be calm and pray for them, end quote. Councilwoman Dorsey Walker described Amy as a wonderful human being and that her loss is a big void, not just in the family. A friend of Amy's told the news outlet Delaware Online that he had spoken with Amy recently. 
He stated that she was very easy to talk to and added that she was, quote, very open. I feel bad for the people who have known her for years, end quote. Her friends and neighbors knew her as the quiet teen who would focus on her homework. Another friend, Nick Straminski, told another media outlet, The News Journal, that Amy was a peacemaker. She wasn't one to fight by every account that I've read, and Nick further reinforced that role that Amy played amongst her friends. He told of a time when he was actually about to get into a fight himself, but Amy took him to speak with him and calmed him down to the point where the fight did not occur. He said she didn't believe in fighting, and the craziest thing is she died in a fight, end quote. Based on his experience with her, he didn't feel that when she entered the bathroom that she thought that there would have been a fight, whether that, rather that she would have been able to talk things out with Trinity Carr. So this was not a question of who, but there were many other questions that needed to be answered as this case would make its way through the courts and just not the criminal courts. The initial charges were criminally negligent homicide and third-degree criminal conspiracy for Carr, while Zion Snow and Shakira Wright received the conspiracy charge only. They were released on bail after these charges. Judge Robert Coonan decided that they should be charged as juveniles. Now, this may be a point that some don't agree with, especially as a person died and her attackers were not extremely young children who did not know that injury could lead to long-term damage and even death. Though, most likely, as young minds are still developing, they may not have been able to understand that completely. The sentences would be harsher in an adult court where Carr's maximum sentence could have been eight years. No matter whether the case was going to be heard in juvenile or adult court, the charges reflect that people did not see this as an intended outcome, meaning that even if Trinity had wanted and planned to fight, she did not intend to kill Amy. But there was strong and damning evidence against the girls. Video was shared to social media, and this was a building block of the state's case against them. There was a comment that was described as coming from one of the girls, but it did not state which one. Now, I will warn you that this will be hard to hear coming from a teen's mouth or rather keyboard about the death of another teen. I will also abbreviate two words. One, you will know as it begins with an F. The other begins with an R and is used to as a slang against someone who may have learning difficulties. So this was posted, quote, F this R knows having ass bitch, she ugly. We made sure we killed that bitch. Hashtag RIP Amy bitches, end quote. Yes. This personally just makes me, it just makes me have the sickening dread that someone could see what had happened that day and still come back with this reply. The hashtag RIP Amy shows that they knew what the consequences were. And 
yes, it said we made sure we killed that bitch. Could that have been hyperbole? Maybe not knowing the situation, but no. This altogether means they know what happened. So whoever made this comment, what's going to happen to them in the future? You know, what will they become? Will their heart continue to just get harder and harder to the point they're they're not even part of humanity anymore? I mean, this is beyond appalling. On the reverse side of that, you also then have to wonder, is this something that possibly their young mind could not quite comprehend at that time? They were basically putting out a confession out into the world for everyone to see. So thinking about that, you wouldn't expect someone to put a confession on social media, but that is essentially what they just did. So does that mean mean that their minds, their brains are not quite developed enough to understand what the consequences are? that this is a major piece of evidence that can be used against you and one or more of your friends. Given this information, what type of sentence would be sufficient to reflect the horrific and overwhelming loss of such a young, bright woman? Carr was first to receive punishment in April of 2017. She was found guilty on criminally negligent homicide, which in juvenile court is called delinquent. Um, and also of second-degree criminal conspiracy. As she was being tried as a juvenile, she could be sentenced to the eight-year, or she could not be sentenced to the eight years in jail. Hence, she was sentenced to six months in a rehabilitation center, 500 hours of community service, and probation until the age of 21. There would also be court supervision until the age of 19. While there was not many specifics provided for that. It seems like it would be a different aspect of supervision, possibly to do with her community service up until that time. Um, But she did not face jail time as the prosecution had sought. Zion Snow was sentenced to 18 months of community supervision and 300 hours of community service. Shakira Wright was found not delinquent or as it would be called, not guilty in adult court, as they did not see that there was sufficient evidence against her, as well as the fact that within the video, it is seen that she attempted to get Trinity Carr off of Amy. Judge Robert Coonan was then limited to a certain extent on the sentences that he could provide in juvenile court, um, as well as you know within the charges that were brought against them. But he did make it very clear about the actions of Trinity Carr and Zion Snow. Going forward for probably the rest of this episode regarding Amy's case, I will be using some quotes and I will make sure that each quote is prefaced with quote and then ended with end quote. There are things that I think are best said in the direct quote as they were said either in court transcripts, or directly to the media about the case. One of the things that led towards some of the sentencing decision was a picture that Zion Snow posted on social media, which was a picture of her sneakers. In addition to that, Snow had also posted a quote saying, we going to get her, she's scared. He took the picture 
of the sneakers that was posted as a sign of, quote, parlance for preparing for a fight, end quote. So you may be wondering, someone died. Even in juvenile court, why was there no jail time or more time in a juvenile center? That comes down to the actual cause of Amy Joyner Francis's death. She died of cardiac arrest. The actual cause of death was not internal bleeding due to a punch or a kick or by damage to her brain, anything like that. It was cardiac arrest, which was the result of a, quote, complication from a cardiac and pulmonary condition that had previously not been diagnosed, end quote. A further quote from the medical examiner's report said, quote, sudden cardiac death due to large atrial septal defect with a contributing factor of physical and emotional stress due to physical assault, end quote. To put it more simply, it was a cardiac incident that she was vulnerable to, vulnerable to because of a pre-existing heart condition. Dr. Richard Rengel, who was a pediatric or is a pediatric cardiologist, gave testimony. And he said that what Amy had was something called Eisenmenger syndrome. Now, this is very rare. And he also said that there was not a way to determine that Amy was, you know, at risk prior to the incident. Um, the syndrome is composed of, quote, a heart defect combined with severe pulmonary hypertension, end quote. He made a further comparison to an athlete who is seemingly in good shape and has been very active for most of his or her life, but then one day collapses and dies due to a prior undiagnosed condition. With this very surprising revelation, the Department of Justice said, quote, the individuals responsible for Amy Joyner Francis's death are minors, but they must be held accountable for their actions, end quote. This is where I think of the phrase fullest extent of the law. Judge Coonan had a lot to say on this matter. We will be getting quite a few quotes from him. So, here we go. Quote, While it may be true that Amy Joyner Francis, due to her condition, would have died from a multitude of stressors until such an event occurred, if at all, she had a right to live one more day, one more week, one more month or year until her time without a contributing cause of another. End quote. That's is exactly how I feel, that even just one moment taken away from someone is one moment too much. And he continued to say that the fight was done with, quote, intent to harm, and it was not a mutual fight, end quote. When looking at any type of attack or fight, there is known potential consequences. Kunin said, quote, I purposely used the word attack because that is what the evidence established, not a fight between two teenagers squaring off to settle some mutual grievance, but whether an act of violence initiated and carried out by Carr over a perceived slight on social media, end quote. The defense, however, said that Carr had no way of knowing what would happen given Amy's heart condition. 
He said it was, quote, unforeseeable, end quote. Judge Coonan's response included observations that the location of the fight itself could have led to death, such as all of the hard surfaces and corners that are within a bathroom, meaning that hitting Amy's head in just the right spot or just hard enough could have foreseeably led to death. He also said, quote, the attack carried out by Trinity Carr in the close confines of the school bathroom stall posed risk of potential catastrophic physical harm, including death by virtue of the tile floor, walls, and fixtures. Had a death resulted from internal bleeding after striking her head on the floor, would that result in any way change the risk the assault itself created? Clearly, this question must be answered in the negative. End quote. I've also thought about the fact that she... Car took Amy into the handicap stall. That would give Carr more control because it was both a bigger area than just the general um, bathroom and it would get them away from anybody who might want to intervene, but it may have also allowed Carr to basically trap Amy within that stall. Judge Coonan also used a standard of what he would call a, quote, reasonable person. And he determined that Trinity Carr should have realized that any time somebody attacks another person, the obvious results would be some type of physical trauma. So going back to what he just said, it could have happened by any of the hard surfaces within that bathroom. And when we think of physical trauma, we know that there's a wide range of results, whether it be, you know, minor issues, all the way to long-term effects and even death. He called Trinity Carr's behavior, quote, a gross deviation, end quote. So given this information, Judge Coonan decided the criminally negligent legal standard applied to Trinity Carr. The defense, of course, did not see it that way. They said that the incident was just one of many school fights that happened even at Howard High over the last few years. And he also said that it didn't hold up to Judge Coonan's interpretation I'm sorry, interpretation of statewide statistics. However, Judge Coonan was prepared for this. He had numbers and statistics from the CDC on youth risk behavior from the 2015 or the previous year. In that study, it said that 16% of Delaware high school students were involved in fights, and of those, 3% of females were injured in the reported fights. So using this information, Coonan did say that, you know, um, Amy's death was outside of a, quote, reasonable person's standard. Even 16-year-olds have standards. The beauty of statistics lies in the eye of every beholder. Do not the same statistics support the conclusion that 84% of high school students in Delaware do not engage in fights because to do so would be outside of the appropriate standard of conduct 
for a high school student of similar age. I find that to be the case, end quote. There was another piece to the sentencing that I personally found a little disturbing or questionable. The judge said that Trinity Carr was prohibited from possessing a deadly weapon until age 25. Okay, now I know that this attack happened as Trinity Carr was very young. And I personally, though, don't feel that she should be able to legally possess a deadly weapon apart from normal utensils that are needed for everyday life. What I mean by that is she's going to need kitchen knives to help cook. You know, she might have other things such as a tire iron. These are things that people have everyday uses for. But other items such as a rifle or handgun, that seems too much for me to say that she, whether she can or cannot legally possess that. You know, I don't see how someone who was directly involved in a fight that killed someone no matter that there was an underlying condition, that they should be able to have a gun. However, he did not see everything as all negative, and he did hope that Carr could be rehabilitated after this. Sherry Dorsey Walker, the spokeswoman for the, said, quote, At the end of the day, you cannot brutalize someone, pummel someone in the bathroom, and lead to their death, and there's no consequence for that action. End quote. And while I would like to say that this was the end of the public turmoil that the family would have to go through, it wasn't. First, Amy's brother early on after the incident made a statement about false social media pages and even fundraisers being brought out in Amy's name even a name of Amy's sister, even though she didn't have one. Not many people in the family even had social media accounts, just her brother. So if someone saw a fundraiser saying it was for Amy's family, he didn't want people to donate. So this is just showing that people were using a family's tragedy to try to bring about their own financial gain. But in an extreme blow to the family and to everybody who loved Amy, the conviction for Trinity Carr was overturned. This happened on March 1st, 2017, when the Delaware Supreme Court said that Trinity Carr could not have known that Amy Joyner Francis would have died as a result of the fight. But as she did plan the fight out, the conspiracy conviction stood. The Supreme Court said, quote, no reasonable fact finder could conclude that Carr's attack, which inflicted only minor physical injuries, posed a risk of death so great that she was grossly deviant for not recognizing it. Joyner Francis's death from cardiac arrest was simply too remote from the hazards of Carr's conduct and too accidental in its occurrence to transform what Carr did from a physical attack into criminally negligent homicide, end quote. Now, as far as the sentence itself, it probably would not have had much weight against it as, you know, she wasn't sentenced to jail. She still needed to be sentenced for the conspiracy. Now, Amy's family spokesperson said, quote, 
the most dangerous city in the nation for children between 12 and 17 is Wilmington, Delaware. The overturned ruling by the Delaware Supreme Court regarding the murder of Amy Joyner Francis supports this fact. And that was this is the end of that quote. But she further set, made two other statements. Quote, did the justices see the video? She and her cohorts plotted Amy's death on social media and they get to walk freely while Amy's family is bound by her untimely death, end quote. And then she also said, the Joyner Francis family, quote, cannot find peace or justice in the first state, end quote. But as can be expected, Carr's defense team was happy with the change. Her attorney, Decker, said, quote, there's no doubt any high school fight is an ugly thing to behold, end quote. He did emphasize that this was rare because of Amy's heart condition and also, which to just interject something right here, I cannot even, I don't know, this quote from him is, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but here it is, that the quote, purpose of the fight was not death, but rather discipline, end quote. I'm just I'm just seeing this discipline is supposed to be something to teach someone with, not physical violence. So I swear I, I read that quote like five times before. I'm like, yeah, this is what he said. But to continue on with some of the things that he said, he also stated, quote, there's never been a case like this in Delaware and hardly anywhere else, end quote. And... There are some things that I do agree with in what he says next, but not to the extent that it would result in physical violence. He brought up that teens can be impulsive. Yes, we can all agree to that, and even a lot of adults can be impulsive. He said that teens face a lot of stress when in high school. And yes, remembering when I was in high school, I thought it was a lot of stress, even though looking back, Sometimes it's not as stressful as it is being an adult, but yes, we agree it's stressful. But he also then pointed out the development of a young person's brain. And yes, Trinity Carr is still a child. This, I also understand that her brain is still developing. And he further stated that she did have a support system. She has a family who loves her. She is a good child. She has parents who love her. They are productive members of society. She has grandparents who love her, end quote. They saw this, um, the reversing of the conviction, as benefiting her in the way in which she can move forward with her life. So the overturning of the conviction, though not really affecting her stay in the juvenile rehabilitation center or you know, community service, it could benefit her in the fact that if there was a background check, that could come about. But I'm also looking at this as this is a news story that took place in the time of social media, as we could see in the events that led up to the fight, as well as all it will take is just a quick search to find any news articles regarding it as well. 
Now, Amy's family did have a lawsuit against the Newcastle County Vocational Technical School District, and that was a lawsuit for negligence and deprivation of constitutional rights. They did go to settlement with the school district, so we do not know the actual outcome of that. But I am a little curious about how people might feel about this. Amy's death did not come about because the school knew that there were unsafe conditions. They didn't have a faulty handrail on a stair. They didn't have wet spots or a leaking roof that may have caused somebody to slip. You know, um, anything like that. It was in a girl's bathroom. The plan itself took place on social media. So is the school supposed to or even allowed to monitor everyone's social media? Would that be taken as a violation of privacy? So I truthfully, I'm not sure about the school being held responsible for this. Now, if they had done something such as hold off on providing aid, if, um, you know, if say Amy had been in there for hours and nobody realized she was gone, things like that, or if there had been a lack of security or a breach of security protocol, then yes. But something like this, you know, it, it occurred during the course of what should have been a normal day in the course of what every student has to do at least one time a day, which is go into the bathroom. There was also a lawsuit brought against Carr and Snow by Amy's family. Now, as an interesting side note to this, Carr's family, who had a homeowner's insurance policy through USAA, sought to use that policy to cover damages or settlements awarded to Amy's family. So I'm not an insurance expert. I am one of those people who likes to read all of the documents. So I have read like a whole complete insurance policies cover to cover before. So depending on the policy that you may have, there's, of course, certain things that are covered, certain things that aren't, things that may be covered except certain situations. So just so many caveats and asterisks and notes within any insurance policy. So within most policies, well, probably all policies, there are provisions for liability and bodily damage. But there are questions as far as the intent. Now, as the cars had requested USAA to cover them, USAA came back and requested a summary judgment that they be released from any type of indemnity to represent her. And first, this was denied, meaning that USAA would be obligated to represent Carr and... That was the first point, but they did not want to be liable for her actions. So a lot of words were used repetitively throughout any decisions, and you can actually find the opinion out online. That's actually the only court document that I could find. More about that in a moment. Um, but some terms that were used a lot throughout the decisions were Things such as reasonable expectations, um, intent, and accident. So that was pretty much used throughout the whole document. The reason why I said, or 
kind of want to come back to what documents you can find online is there wasn't really anything out there regarding court documents for the actual trial itself other than quotes that were made public within the newspapers or other media outlets. My thought on this is it probably it was because it was a juvenile court, but since it was a case that was in the public view that there were some statements presented to the press. As far as the USAA um, request to be held not liable, um, some of the arguments were, and I'm reading a quote here, to label an intentional assault as the parties agree occurred here, an accident is to disregard the ordinary, everyday meaning of accident, the Supreme Court noted. We thus hold that whether an assault is an accident is determined by the intent of the insured and not by the viewpoint of the victim. Further, even though Carr may not have intended to cause Francis's death, she certainly intended to cause injury to her. Therefore, the provision that excludes coverage for intended injuries would bar coverage in any event. End quote. So basically what it's saying here is the intent of Trinity Carr was to cause some type of injury. It wasn't the intent to cause one injury or another. It was any type of injury. And in this case, that included death. Um, also, to say that a planned fight, a planned assault was, quote, an accident is very demeaning, quite frankly, in my opinion. This is my opinion at this point. It's very demeaning to say something was an accident when there is proof that there was discussion prior to it happening and, yes, pre-existing condition, underlying condition, doesn't matter in the fact that this was a planned assault and a young woman with so much potential was lost because of that. In the original decision where it was found that USAA should actually represent and um, indemnify Trinity Carr, the judge in that case, Noel Primos, said that he considered the bathroom fight as a, quote, occurrence under the policy. And yeah, so it's an occurrence. And that wording itself, I also find, I think demeaning is the only word or belittling of the event itself technically wasn't an occurrence, yes, but it was a fight, a pre-planned fight, not something that accidentally happened. But one of the reasons behind that ruling, the first ruling, um, was that Judge Primos also saw um, Amy's death as unforeseeable, going back to the underlying condition that she had. What was interesting in the ruling was something that Primos himself brought up, saying, quote, on the one hand, there is the well-established Delaware rule that an insured shall not profit by way of indemnity from his own wrongdoing. 
On the other hand, there is an innocent victim, Ms. Francis, whose heirs and family members would be negatively affected by the denial of coverage for Ms. Carr, end quote. So basically he was saying he understood, I'm, I'm sorry, just to cover myself, my interpretation of what he's saying is he understands that someone cannot benefit from something they do themselves. In other words, let's think of it as a car, you know, you, you're running behind on payments, you have, say, gap insurance where it will cover everything if something happens to it, and you intentionally have an accident where it rolls into a river and cannot be salvaged. In that case, you could get that car paid off, and while you may not make a profit itself on it, you will, will benefit from not having to pay that, that car payment. It will help your credit, which is really the profit here, because the car is paid off and you're not running behind on your payments anymore. That's one example. But then to use the fact that he's saying there was another victim in here, meaning um, Amy Joyner Francis, and that her family should be able to use the insurance for damages, it's saying then, to me, then what does Trinity Carr pay then? You know, what's, you know, why is it the insurance company having to pay for something that was intentional on her part? So that's a very polar statement, just this whole thing. It goes from one end to the other um, as far as logic to me. Um, so all in all, this then leaves us with a lot of questions. You know, I have to admit that I'm I'm pretty torn about the type of punishment that Trinity Carr should have received. There are two things that there's no doubt about. One is that there was a concerted attack against a young woman who was interested in conflict resolution and didn't want to fight. The second is that that same young woman did have an underlying health condition that nobody knew about, which would be greatly exacerbated by this physical attack. The argument was used that, yes, in this case, it was the physical attack by Trinity Carr, but it could have been anything that led to her death. So where does the responsibility lie? Should Trinity Carr be held completely responsible for Amy's death? Or should consideration be given that it was not the direct cause of Amy's death? This brings up an instant in my own life that is somewhat comparable. And looking at the situation, it, it does reinforce my thought that Trinity Carr should have had at least some type of sentence regarding um, what she did to Amy, even if she did not intend to bring death. When I was much younger and I was dating someone, he came over one night and just from the time I opened the door for him, I could tell he was very distracted. He didn't say anything. He just walked to the couch and he sat down. So I asked him what was wrong and he told me his aunt had died. He told me that his aunt, who was quite older, was driving on a highway bypass. Um, and it's actually pretty long. It's a very 
you know, it's a very high speed or longer stretch of highway that we have around here. So he said his aunt um, was driving in one direction on that highway and the speed's at least 65 miles per hour there. There were some other young men who were visiting the area, probably the local beaches or my thought, and were driving in the opposite direction of my boyfriend's aunt. They were speeding, and he believed they were also drinking, though at the time we had this discussion, he wasn't sure. Um, in between the highway was this large grass median, and the driver of that car, going at a very high speed, hit the grass and literally, like, projected or flew onto the other side of the highway. His aunt's car was hit, and she died. So, of course, I keep checking on him, and a couple of days later, as we're talking, I ask him, you know, what's going on? Does he know about the charges against those that hit her? And he said they would be charged with their regular driving violations, whatever they were, but not with his aunt's death. You see, just before their car hit her, she had a massive heart attack. This was likely caused by the fact that a very large machine weighing who knows how many tons going more than 65 miles an hour was now kind of hurtling at her. The heart attack was actually what killed her pretty much instantaneously, but I know that forensic science can tell if something happened pre or post-mortem, so apparently they could tell that she technically was not alive when the other car hit her. I mean, I know that death would have had to have been instantaneous, but I'm thinking if, you know, if not for having this car hurtling at her, she would have had who knows how many weekends to spend with her sister, holidays to spend with her family, or, you know, cooking and sharing memories. But she didn't, and I was angry, and I know he was incensed. But those that hit his aunt's car did not pay for the actual death, just the violations that led up to it. So if we look at it in this case of a drunk driver, and that is something that, of course, is also, it's prevalent. We hear cases every day of people being killed by a drunk driver. Or, like I said, at the time, he wasn't exactly sure. Um, and really, after our last conversation, I kind of dropped it because I didn't want to upset him. So I do not know for sure they had been drinking, but regardless, they were driving recklessly. And driving recklessly could lead to, you know, events such as an accident. And in my opinion, they should have been charged with vehicular manslaughter. So that's my thought. But looking at it from that standpoint, you might think, well, they didn't actually plan to hurt anybody. At the same time, they knew that getting behind the wheel would cause some or could possibly cause someone's death. So using this example, wouldn't Trinity Carr, knowing that she was attacking somebody, knowing that she had someone cornered with even hitting Amy's head against, you know, the sink, that could lead to severe injury up to and including death. This was not unplanned that possibly Trinity and Zion 
saw Amy in the hallway and just on the spur of a moment followed her into the bathroom or anything like that. They had planning. They had the night before and that morning to think about what they were going to do. There was evidence that they had planned. With that much lead time to think about the consequences of what they were going to do, you know, with also seeing the video evidence, seeing that Trinity was hitting Amy's head against that sink, it would be obvious that the results could be anything from you know physically scarring Amy as far as cuts, um, you know, around her head and her face, to brain damage and even death. Amy was a young woman trying to lend support to a friend and what I would probably consider wise advice to be careful. And her life was taken by someone who had so much rage that they took it out on a kind, compassionate young woman. It's at this point again that I take pause and I look at Trinity Carr and I have to keep thinking about her age. The brain does not develop completely till approximately the age of 21 or even older. Trinity Carr was far younger than that. Was there still enough time for development so that she can get past what she's done? And again, that leads me to another question. A lot of people use a phrase such as saying, you know, that person will have to live with what they've done for the rest of their life. That's true, but we then have to wonder, what does that mean to that individual? I don't know Trinity Carr. I know that in pictures or brief news videos that I've seen of her, at least in those circumstances, she does not seem contrite or remorseful. In my mind, I am playing back and forth. I have those two little, you know, I just kind of have this conversation back and forth with myself of someone died, a young woman who did not participate in the fight, who did not want to fight, died while at the same time knowing that Trinity Carr hadn't even really begun life herself, that she was young. She's not old enough to vote. She's not old enough to legally smoke. She's not old enough to legally drink. So, you know, what can we really say should be the responsibility? When I also see the pictures of her and wonder if she is remorseful, I also have to think that her attorneys may have said, don't lose your cool, don't show emotion, don't say anything, or, you know, that type of advice. Was that why she didn't seem to show any emotion? And while she did conspire to attack and fight Amy, there's no actual evidence that she you know, conspired to kill her. I also feel that the fact that so much information was put on social media beforehand shows a lack of that brain development. Though granted, there are some pretty short-sighted and stupid people out there who broadcast their crimes on social media, I don't think that's something that I would apply in this case. Um, I don't think they would have been broadcasting their intention to fight if they thought it would lead to someone's death. And even though at least one person went online and made comments to some extent celebrating Amy's death, I, I think all of this goes to show that the brain development was not there. 
to really comprehend what was done and that, you know, Amy had actually been killed. So even if Amy did not have that underlying medical condition, I do also keep going to the fact that at any point in time, Amy's head could have hit that sink or she could have fallen back and just as quickly she could have died. I think some of us might you know, be stuck in a loop about how we think about this case. There is probably 90% of me that thinks Trinity Carr should have served actual jail time. But I'm also a person who thinks there should be more jail time with rehabilitation, you know, whenever there is some type of physical altercation. We see a lot of things on the news or read about them in news articles that someone who committed a violent crime had been charged with a previous violent crime, but they were out on probation or they made bail. And we have to wonder if they had been in jail, you know, this wouldn't have happened. It does also bring me to rehabilitation and guidance for our youth. And I will talk about that a little bit more at the end of this episode. There is that 10% of me left that wonders, would it have really done any service to Trinity Carr to have her serve 9 or 10 or 12 years in jail? Given her age, those would be really years that she's developing herself, that she's becoming an adult and starting to contribute to society, if she does. But she would go to college. She would start a career. And by serving jail time, that would have all come to a halt. And going into the workforce and into school after she would have gotten out may have been much harder for her. So could this be something that she can learn from and maybe even work towards helping others, working with maybe children who have anger issues or recognizing signs that you know, a child may need a little more support or a little more guidance? But then Amy didn't get that chance. She didn't get a chance to start a career. And so that's why I think this will just keep going back and forth in my mind for eternity. With pure emotion as a mother, I say that Trinity Carr did not get the punishment that she deserved. Also, with pure emotion and as a mother, I can say that I think Trinity Carr does deserve a second chance. When our son was first born, my husband and I happened to be watching a show where a former police officer turned her son in for murder. It was the most difficult decision she would have ever made, I'm sure. My husband said that if our child ever committed a violent crime, he wouldn't turn him in. I said I would, and we had very strong opposing views. The reason being is I put myself into the other mother's position. The other mother also would have felt this pain of her child being attacked or injured or even killed so that even though my child, I, I would love more than anything else on this earth, if I put myself in the other parent's position, I could not 
in any good conscience not turn him in. I'm telling this story because I'm just trying to prove that you can look at things from both angles. And I'm looking at this from Trinity's family as well, that she made a horrible and huge mistake, a mistake that cannot be undone and has left lifelong implication for Amy's family. So I know a good portion of this episode so far has been talking about intent and teen against teen or child against child. And this leads me to a second case, which is still kind of working its way through the judiciary. Um, One person has pled guilty, but this we do know was planned. And I touched on it briefly on a previous episode. It was kind of a mini episode, um, you know, about some recent events. And so this is an update on Madison Sparrow's case. Madison Sparrow was a young woman who was reported missing in October of 2020 from Newark, Delaware. She was 17 years old, a young woman on the cusp of adulthood. She was starting to gain independence, and she went out with some friends to do some shopping, but she didn't come home. It was found that she had communicated with her ex-boyfriend and She had been in an area that was defined as the location that Noah Sharp was at. So police did very early on focus on him. Um, He admitted within three days of Madison going missing that he had killed her. He was charged with first degree murder, possession of a deadly weapon during the commission of a felony, and conspiracy in the first degree. His bail was set over a million dollars, which to me was too little. Again, I have these little arguments in my mind. Um, One is there's due process. Somebody should be able to participate in their own defense. And at times it's easier to facilitate that if the person is not in jail. Um, I also am a firm believer in innocent until proven guilty. So to hold somebody in jail until the the actual trial comes up to me is also very hard to deal with because what if that person is innocent? However, with violent crimes and those against children, you have to look at the susceptibility of those who were the victims, the heinousness of the crime, and in this case, that he actually admitted to it. So, to me, if there had to be any bail at all, a million was too little. So, this was not a question of if he did it or not, but he still got the bail. Um, I don't, I'm probably assuming he's still in jail right now because that's a lot of money, even if it's a bond, to come up with. But there was another classmate of Madison's, Annika Stolchinsky, and I don't know if I'm saying that last name correctly, but to a degree with someone who plots out a murder, I'm not entirely too worried about that. She had the same charges levied against her along with an over million dollar bail as well. 
Madison's body was found after Noah led them to her. So again, an admission there. And this time there's physical evidence to prove that admission. The family made a statement saying, quote, it is with incredible sadness that I share this. Law enforcement has found Madison's body. There is an ongoing investigation and we need to allow them to do their job so that anyone involved can be held accountable. Please understand that we cannot provide any additional information at this time. There will be no comments to media. Let law enforcement or let enforcement handle this for the time being. The entire family is processing this and grieving, so please allow them to do so. All the support and outpouring of love has been amazing and so appreciated. Please know that it will be forever appreciated. So again, we do enter the arena where a family is grieving in public for a child that was taken way too soon. Attorney General Kathy Jennings said, quote, There have been so many times over the years that you think, this is as tragic as I'll ever see. And then another terrible crime occurs. This is the worst kind where a child has been taken from a mother and father. End quote. So looking at children, teenagers, you know, we need to prepare them for being adults. But in terms of this case, we, I think we still in some ways, or at least in the past, have looked at high school love in terms of puppy love or high school sweethearts. And while those types of relationships probably do still abound, we begin, we've begun to hear more and more stories about young people being harassed, coerced, or guilted into staying into relationships. We've seen these oftentimes escalate to you know, domestic violence. And as with adults, the most dangerous time for a victim of a domestic violence is when they are trying to get out of a relationship. So while right now, as Noah himself has not gone to trial yet, we haven't really heard anything about direct, um, whether it was directly domestic violence, if there was emotional coercion or anything like that. But when something results in death, it makes me think that there were things going on previously as well. And as I mentioned, the death of Madison was planned in advance. Annika Stolchinsky was actually someone that Madison had known for what was said as a period of time. No exact period of time was given, nor was there anything said that would give more of an insight to their relationship and to what kind of relationship Sharp also would have had with Stolchinsky. Madison was a junior at Newark Charter School, and... You know, again, she was just coming up to becoming an adult, and she had actually gone out um, shopping to try to buy a birthday present for one of her sisters. And then she didn't come home. The ultimate cause of death for Madison was blunt force trauma. As Noah has not gone to trial yet, I will preface this with allegedly. So everything that I'm saying is what allegedly had happened. Sharp and Stolchinsky lured Madison Sparrow to a wooded area that was near an elementary school, McClary Elementary School, um, either in the afternoon or evening of that Friday when she went missing. 
when she got there, she was struck in the head using an aluminum baseball bat. When the area was searched, the baseball bat and Madison's clothes were found in that area. There has been no motive that's been provided, but ultimately Madison is not coming home to her family. She probably trusted these individuals and, you know, didn't feel unsafe with them, especially if, you know, depending on the relationship with Annika, if they were friends, as well as, you know, being another female, she may have felt more safe. Sharp did also move the body. So while she was found near the elementary school, she was um, ultimately moved to another wooded area near I-95 and Route 896. Um, and that's like in a different part of Newark. So this was planned. They made a conscious decision to lure Madison into the woods so that she could be struck and killed. Stolchinsky's plea was to first-degree murder as well as conspiracy. Now, she's not been sentenced yet, so that will be upcoming. And when I see that that's been done, I will go ahead and give another update. Um, now, Noah Sharp, I always find this intriguing that... When someone has unequivocal proof that they've done something, i.e. he took them to Madison's body, um, that they still plead not guilty. I mean, I guess that has to be the tactic. Everybody is supposed to have a fair trial, but I mean, I've never, of course, I've never been in this position, nor do I ever intend to be, but it's just going to drag everything out. Um, he's putting her family through e through this prolonged journey before they get any justice, where they hopefully will get justice. And both he and Stolchinsky will serve an extremely long time in jail. Annika it was 17, but... Even though she is technically a minor, she did actually conspire to murder. Um, that, that is a difference between um, Trinity Carr and Noah Sharp and Annika. You know, Trinity's conspiracy was for the fight. Annika and Noah was to actually kill her. So Annika was being charged as an adult, even though at the time she was being held in a juvenile facility. I'm interested in learning more about the motive, even though no motive is sufficient to do anything like this, but what would drive a, a young man and young woman to discuss killing another young person? What could she have done to make anybody so angry that they killed her, that they actually had a plan to kill her? And now... Madison Sparrow's family is going to also have to go through the rest of their lives without Madison in it. Any plans about the future that she had are gone. And there's no amount of jail time that can ever bring her back. 
So we've looked at these two cases, which are heartbreaking. Any parent is probably angry or scared or both about, you know, discussions of these cases. And, you know, I've, I've always thought that there needs to be more support for children. We hear a lot of times that the system fails. And usually we hear that saying when someone either is let out of jail early or they're not found guilty and they commit a crime or they're on probation. Just anything like that where a criminal has committed an offense that could have been prevented. Other times we hear the system failed in terms of children who have fallen through the cracks in the system of abuse and neglect and they end up killed as well by those who are supposed to care for them. But I don't look at it when I say, when we say when the system fails, I don't look at it as individual circumstances or individual incidents. I look at it as a whole saying when as the point in time, meaning as a community, we need to try to build self-esteem within children from the time that they are very young. We need to show support for different activities to build their self-esteem and confidence. We need to be able to mentor and guide them in areas of interest up to and including mentorships, you know, for those who are interested in different fields of study. We also need to make sure that people have the appropriate tools to parent that there are resources available if there are different circumstances, such as um, an unexpected death in the family where someone needs more support, if someone's been laid off or fired from a job, illness within the family, to provide that extra support to those out there who need it. I know that's kind of polarizing as well. You look at things and some people, and I've heard this said before, that, you know, I don't have children in the school system, so why should I be paying taxes towards that? Because it's not an investment in just that individual child or any of the individual children that are going to that school. It's an investment in the community as a whole in building good contributing members of society as well as people who learn skills such as the resolution conflict they learn how to properly deal with emotions that come up. They have mental health support. And that needs to continue to grow. And I know looking at this point in time, of course, there are kids that are, you know, 7th, 8th, ninth grade. They're older. And even if just by some magic flip of the switch, we could automatically start diverting all of our resources for early intervention, whether it be um, you know, activities or groups or more counselors in school, we can't just flip that, that switch and everything automatically go towards those resources. We have generations of kids who may not have had the support that they needed as children who are now, now adults who are how do I say this? They're not providing the support and guidance to their children now. So 
I don't know what happened in any one of the children's lives here or the teens' lives. Noah, Trinity, Annika, Zion. If there was any sign that maybe there were anger management issues, if there was signs that they needed to talk to someone or go to counseling, I don't know if that was there. But we also don't know were there the resources there if they had needed it. I know I'm not a teacher. I'm not a counselor. It's just things that I've seen. And going back to one of my early episodes, which I re-uploaded a little while ago, you probably heard this, some of this on that as well, um, with the case of two brothers who both were convicted of murder, that, and two different murders, it wasn't even the same instance, that you know, we, we just need better resources to try to eliminate these types of things happening so that we don't dread sending our children off to school. And whether it's the individual fights that are happening within the school systems and kids are being injured, they're being taught that violence is the way you deal with a situation and not a calm, logical conversation But then we also have tragedies where an individual within the school or within the community attacks the school as a whole and leaves the community devastated. And I'm using that term community a lot because that's what we are. Even though we live in different houses, we have different backgrounds, we all want the same thing, I hope. We all want happy, healthy lives for everybody We want people to be able to succeed and explore their dreams. And I might be, you know, I know I've used the term naive about myself earlier, but that's what I think we all want. We know it's not 100% achievable. We know there are going to be people who either are resistant to change, who are resistant to advice, but why not try to help the people that we can and try to set up ways to help people? This was, like I said, this was a tough case. And I still see just one frame from the video. And I w- I didn't even watch the video. It was just a picture that was on a TV screen one day. And that has just stayed with me. And just thinking of how young they were. And that a mother, a father got a phone call that no parent should ever have to get. That no parent should ever have to face. But more and more often, parents are facing these things. They're having to face consequences of other people's actions. And it's their child who has paid the price And as a result, them and the rest of their family as well will pay for it by not having that person in their life. And again, the community will pay for it too because the person who's died could have provided so much positive, you know, um, contributions, so many positive contributions to the community but they're no longer able to do so because an act of violence by one person took them away. 
Now, I could probably go on for hours about things that I want to talk about regarding it, but I think I'm going to end right here and just say that in looking at Amy Joyner Francis's case, Trinity Carr has been given a second chance, a chance that many people may not agree with, a, ch a second chance that hurts because it makes you look at, at the circumstances around the fight and wonder if this doesn't call for someone to serve a long time in jail, what does? She planned a fight, but she does have that second chance and I hope she's doing everything that she can with it, that she's not wasting that chance. I don't think there can ever truly be justice for Amy. In so many ways, circumstances conspired against her with everything happening just at those moments where she became the most vulnerable and that underlying condition led to her death. But that wouldn't have done that if other classmates of hers hadn't conspired to attack her. What I want to encourage everybody to do is talk to your children. Ask them how their day was and not just do it as kind of a superficial, I got to ask this. Ask them, talk to them, ask about their interest, encourage them in what they do, show them support, love unconditionally, and make sure they know that resolution should not come at the end of a fist or a foot or a bat or anything else. Resolution should come with logical, calm minds coming together to talk and discuss what their problems are so that hopefully everybody can leave with a better understanding and can be happy with any discussion or compromises that have taken place. And if they can't leave with all of that, at least leave with an understanding that you, you've expressed your opinion, you've said how you felt, you know what the other person's feelings are. And if you come down to two choices where you either have to accept something or fight, never, ever go with fight. And by fight, I mean physically fighting. Stand up for yourself and stand up for your morals. But if it comes to physically fighting someone, don't do that. Violence is not the answer and it doesn't solve anything. It only begets more violence. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this longer episode of Danger on Delmarva. It was a power, powerful case, one that should have never happened. And with Madison's case, I hope that there are some resolutions and conclusions soon for her family. And again, to cover myself, allegedly... Just remember the word allegedly looking forward to a time where Noah Sharp can pay for his crimes. Just as a quick ending, again, all of the sources that I used will be linked in the description. There were quite a few sources um, that I used in regards to the Madison Sparrow case. There are, you know, again, a lot of sources, but pretty much most of them say the same thing. 
But as I did review the article, I wanted to make sure that it was linked there. Um, there are a lot of sources for um, Amy Joyner Francis's case as well. And again, there is a lot of repetition in there. But at the same time, I think each article does bring a little bit more to the discussion. So they will all be in there. My contact information will be in the description as well for this podcast, as well as my other one, Mystifyingly Missing, True Crime and Thought-Provoking Events. Um, I do have another one as well that I've not touched in a while. I do have a chronic ongoing illness um, that's pretty rare in itself. And maybe that's why this kind of touched home too, um, because it did take years for a diagnosis, but I've not done an episode of that podcast in a while, but I do want to, to start that as well, start that up again um, as we try to move forward now that a lot of the isolation and lockdowns are pretty much over with. Um, so all of that will be linked in there. And I hope that everyone found this episode informative Maybe it can open discussion with your children, but I will talk to everybody soon in about two weeks. Until then, stay safe.